Sophie, welcome to Waterstones. Thank you. Thanks uh, for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about Morris and Marilyn because I think it's a very unique book. This is a story that was actually very well reported at the time and the protagonist wrote a book about their own experience. So I was wondering which of those things you had alighted upon that had sort of made you realise that it was right for a retelling, I suppose. Uh, well, yeah, actually none of their own work. I mean, that seemed to have, although I think one of them, their books, um, the one that sort of documents the, vo the voyage is still in print, but it's definitely not in any bookshop that I've seen. Um, and I found the story through someone else, the work of someone else, which was a, a wonderful um, Spanish filmmaker and he, uh, a guy called Alvaro, um, and he also runs a travel company. And I was researching a piece, I'm a journalist as well, and I was researching a piece about people who kind of choose to escape and live on water or, you know, sort of abandon conventional land-based living. And um, he, as well as run, running this travel company, also collects, he's an obsessive collector of castaway stories. And he kind of has this website just full of all these stories, mostly of individuals, because they tend to be either sort of self-stranded or who've accidentally been stranded. And sort of buried among them, I found this little short film that he'd made about Morris and Marilyn. And immediately when I saw the, a sort of image of them, I was like, hang on, a couple. That's, um, that's sort of immediately interesting. And then I found out they were English. And I was like, oh, that's more interesting. And then I found out that they'd been adrift for nearly four months. And I was like, how on earth do I not know this story? And relatively recently, you know, it was only the early 1970s. Um, and so I watched this film and... and um, the, the film contained an interview with Morris as an old man mm. and um, that just kind of got me immediately because it's a very moving interview but there's something about the way he talks about the experience that he had adrift in the middle of the Pacific Ocean um, with his wife um, that is just incredibly sort of humanly captivating um, and, and, and something particularly about the fact that he's reflecting on it sort of 40 years after the, mm. how many years after the event um, and I was sort of sold from that point, but I didn't know at that point whether there was going to be enough material to, to actually write a book. I knew it was a story worth telling and, and, and you know, potentially worth more than just a piece or an article. Mm. But um, then sort of came the process of like finding out if I could, if there was enough to tell it with. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because as you say, it, it could have just been an article like, oh yeah. my God, what a fantastic story. And what you have done is you have sort of, it's far more fleshed out in this book. And I want to ask how on earth you have managed to achieve that. But what was the point at which you realised that it was going to be a book rather than an article or a piece of art? Yeah, it was only um, once I'd found sort of all the material, most of the material, or actually really a key bit of material. So I quickly got hold of 117 Days Adrift, which was their sort of I think very successful at the time mm. book and I, anyone in I, I've met a few people who've read it or have it on their shelf um, and it's often people who are you know real obsessive sailors or you know people who are really into kind of sailing literature but it's it's quite niche and not, not many people I, I know have um, have heard of it um, so I sort of read that quite quickly but it's very short it's very factual it's quite it's it's a very vivid um, about the sort of experience in its own particular way but it's it's sort of limited to the experience and I knew I wanted sort of more than that um, and then it was quite easy to start tracking down sort of coverage because they were mm. briefly very famous and so there was lots of sort of articles I could quite easily gain access to but I knew there must be more out there and so I enlisted the help of a, a brilliant archive researcher, um, a guy called Gregor Murbach who um, dug out lots of sort of um, audio and video and sort of old newsreels and had access to archives all over the world that I wouldn't have you know, been able to get into myself but actually the key thing 
um, was a tip-off from a very dear friend of them theirs who sailed with them, a guy called Colin Foskett, who I'd sort of tracked down and started talking to and ended up spending quite a lot of time with. But um, he was like, oh, have you read the letters? And um, I, I'd seen a book online that I thought was by the same Morris, but... Um, Morris Bailey, and I hadn't got hold of it yet. And then I, I got hold of it, and it was a self-published book of letters that he wrote after Marilyn had died, um, so much, much later in life. And in a way, it's it's sort of covering exactly the same territory he'd already covered. It's it's a, a series of very detailed, quite laborious letters in his sort of inimitable style, um, which you know cover all the sort of adventures they had at sea and. Um, it was sort of amazing having another telling of it and it had more detail because he was sort of looking back on it all rather than rushing a book out just after the event. But um, but what was really incredible about it, and I guess that was the sort of clinching moment of knowing that it could be, it was sort of worthy of a book, was that each letter seemed to begin and end with just these sort of kind of howls of, of pain, really, and of grief because he's writing them about a year and a half. He starts writing them about a year and a half after um, Marilyn dies. Mm. And... He's a man just, well, sort of ironically adrift again in grief. He really, um, you know, she was the sort of driving force of, of so many things and of much of their relationship and of much of him as a person in the world because um, he sort of struggled as a person in the world in mm. lots of ways. Morris. Um, and so he just expresses that at length and in lots of different ways and very honestly and very intimately because he's essentially just writing them as a letter to, to one other person, although he ends up putting them in a book. And mm. I, you know, found the book on secondhand Amazon or something, you know, it was, it's sort of out there. Mm. I think there were about 200 copies out yeah. there or something. But, and that, yeah, that was the sort of the moment I knew it could be something more than just a, a piece. As you say, the, the, the book that they wrote on their immediate return, 117 Days Adrift, quite a dry book filled with lots of uh, detail about boats and measurements <laughs> yeah. and things like that. Yeah. And even with the sort of other bits of, of archival footage that you found, it's still quite a leap from there to be able to flesh it out into a piece of narrative non-fiction. Yeah. And, and I am genuinely sort of agog sometimes when I was reading this book, like how have you managed to do that? Because I feel like I'm absolutely there with them. How, how have you managed to make that leap? Is there much invention in the book or is it simply a question of taking the facts that you know and just writing them in a way that makes them more accessible? Yeah. It's a really good question and a really fair question. And I, I, I really wanted it, you know, I'm a big reader of fiction and I wanted it to read like fiction, but it's not fiction. You know, every fact in the book is true. And, um, but I think I'm used to, you know, I write a lot of sort of long articles in my journalism and, and I'm used to sort of taking quite, I suppose, dry subjects and trying to make them as sort of narratively compelling or as sort of character led as, as possible. And those are always the pieces I like to read the most of. And the books I like to read the most is where you've got sort of people at the, at the heart of it. And But I'm also, I suppose, used to sort of drawing on just anything you can. So there's a lot in the book, which isn't from them necessarily. You know, I spent, a, you know, I've never been sailing in my life, but I spent a, a lot of time watching like David Attenborough documentaries about the oceans or like reading, I don't know, everything from like Moby Dick to um um, like Rachel Carson books about the oceans and like just all sorts of stuff. So there's lots of kind of description um, and I, I suppose trying to kind of create atmosphere and a sense of what it would like to be at sea and to be adrift, um, which which comes from all sorts of other places. And um, I feel like is a legitimate thing to do and I'm not sort of attributing that to them, but it's more like, well, this is, this is the ocean, <laughs> you know, yeah. when you're out in the middle of the ocean, this is what it's like, I guess. And 
So I guess it was, and then, I mean, thank God for, for Morris's like, uh, you know, obsessive attention to detail because you really, even though he, he, he wrote it in his sort of particular way, which could be very impenetrable and quite sort of labored and sort of burdened, it, you know, it's packed with detail and he really didn't stint, you know, mm. so. And actually the, the, the other sort of blessing, although, you know, I wish they, they had been and are, I wish they were alive mm. um, to tell me sort of everything. But uh, there were a lot of friends and people who've been sailing with them who, um, namely Colin, who, who I could talk to at length and who gave me lots of photos and lots of material. And, you know, there's that thing when you're talking to someone about a person that you that really brings them alive yeah. you know that you can get those sort of micro dynamics and inflections and ways of talking and ways of being and, and especially if you know as Colin had been on a boat with them for nine months or whatever in most extreme circumstances that was their second voyage not mm. the not the calamitous voyage um so he could just color in so much and that was incredibly helpful but I, I, you know a lot of it is like in terms of trying to create that sense of of um I don't know, something larger than the bare bones of it is like, yeah, just sort of that kind of stitching together of anything you can kind of lay your hands on, on any colour and any emotion, basically, that you can find yeah, in the yeah. material. Before any of this happened with the boat and the, and, the, and the shipwreck and the rest of their story, what I found really interesting was this sort of their, their meeting because they're, they're quite a odd couple. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could sort of talk a little bit about what it was you think about each of them that made them come together and become this sort of very uh, tight unit, if you like. Mm. Um, yeah, they are such an old couple. And it's funny, I, um, quite late in the process, I tracked down um, Marilyn's half-sister and she was sort of talking about them and their meeting and sort of saying, you know, she could have had anyone. <laughs> and like <laughs> slightly implying like, why did she pick Morris? But um, I'm glad she did. And I think, you know, there was quite an age gap. There was eight, well, I mean, not that big, but eight years between them. But mm. she was very young. She was sort of 21 when they met and he was that much older. And he, as a sort of, you know, in the 60s, as a single man, he was out climbing mountains and flying planes and doing all these things that he, all these sort of quite extreme adventurous hobbies which was part of his way of kind of dealing with what was otherwise, I think, an existence that he didn't enjoy very much. And um, I think that was very exciting to her, you mm. know, when she, she met him. And she, she, like, had this sort of innate chutzpah and, and adventurous spirit, but it hadn't had found much form yet. You know, she hadn't been able to express it yet. So um, I think he was a kind of passport to the world in a way. Or, or, and, you know, she was living with her parents. She was an only child. She'd been adopted by her parents. and. I think that I got the impression again from her half sister Pat that it was it was a very cozy, very loving, but quite contained, mm. you know, life and and quite a conventional one. And it was probably expected that she would stay there very much there until she was married. And you know, I think for a lot of women of that generation, marriage was a sort of, you know, um, a, a way out in a way. Yeah. And I think he offered a particular way out that she could see. Oh, hang on, this isn't just going to be a conventional marriage this could actually we could go places yeah. and so I, I can sort of get it from from her point of view from his point of view obviously he just realized very quickly he'd hit gold you know <laughs> so like I think he knew immediately that she was just had this sort of energy and optimism and light and life that he didn't feel he had in himself or in his life and and you know he knew he was onto a good thing yeah they are I mean they are they complement each other I suppose mm. and it's only through through those different facets of the character that they could probably go on to do these incredibly mm. rec not reckless but sort of adventurous things yeah. that they did together that spirit as you say that's in both of them um, of adventure and and the sort of restlessness like not mm. wanting to be stuck they worked really hard in order to be able to 
get this boat to, to go on this voyage. Um, and there's a moment when they, when they first leave, and in Morris's words, he talks about that real um, division that happens once the sort of the rope is cast off and you leave fixed land and you get out on the water. It's the kind of thing that actually gives me the fear because mm. I'm slightly <laughs> fearful of, of the water. But he talks about that sort of break and it's almost like an escape. And I wondered if you had a sense of, of what it was he was trying to escape from because he, he does feel this relief once he gets on the water. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think he, he, he is very eloquent on that point and, and was very clear about it, you know, in what terms of what he was trying to escape. I think he had a pretty unhappy childhood. Um, you know, he, he it was a sort of a strict and and quite religious sort of upbringing um, in, in various ways and something that he sort of, that was something he rejected quite early. And so I think he was sort of already, he was sort of trying to escape childhood and then he was, to do that, he'd moved to sort of Derby and he'd got a job and he was in a printing press and he was, that also felt quite limited in its own way. And, I, you know, I, 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 uh, and he was sort of desperate to escape, that desperate to escape Derby. He was sort of always wanting to escape, I feel, like mm. Morris, from, from such a sort of early stage in his life. And that sort of took physical form of like, okay, if I can just, then it was England, you know, I've got to like leave this, this. Everything felt oppressive to him, I think, you know, sort of daily life, sort of daily working life, but domestic life, sort of the kind of jobs and chores and all of those things. He just wanted sort of out, but I feel like when someone wants to escape on every front like that, you know, there's the sort of underlying um, message, isn't there, that like, uh, you know, they're escaping themselves, to an extent they're trying to escape themselves, and I think he always, always was, and that's why Marilyn was such a sort of gift for him, because she was a sort of way of escaping himself, because she kind of allowed him to think and in a different way and be live in a different way but um but so was doing a voyage like this it was like oh if i you know you don't get much more extreme i guess than two of you trying to sail to new zealand from england and so um it, that was the sort of ultimate escape i suppose and, and to him it was also always this thing he would keep saying was about trying to get away from civilization it was really trying to get away from from people and mm. and as though as though if you were sort of out in the middle of the ocean, finally you might feel free. And, and I suppose that was one of the things that always sort of got me about him was the, I don't know, it's the sort of myth of that in a way, how mm. we think if, you know, and we all sort of have that feeling, I think sometimes of like, ah, oh, if I could just get away, then things will be okay. And of course you end up in that place and it turns out you're still there and with mm. all your same thoughts and problems and everything yeah. else. And, but I think he really, he felt that very, very acutely. And I think, and I think in a way, the open ocean, what you know, did give him that in a way. I think he did sort of absolutely revel in it, revel in the sort of in nature and in the sort of wonder of that, but also the sort of nothingness of it. You know, I think being kind of at one with like the stars and the and the the water was a sort of very as close as he got to a sort of peace. I think in a way, you have to be careful what you wish for, don't you? Because yeah. what happens on that voyage, <laughs> yeah. we we want readers obviously to discover all of the sort of plot points, but I guess you know we know that the the boat is hit by a whale, it sinks, they are then adrift for, as you say, nearly four months. And, and then absolutely left to their own devices, just the two of them in the middle of the ocean. And that physical survival um, is something, as you say, you, through your research, that you're able to describe really well, how you have to find a way of collecting water, how you have to find a way of food, you know, finding food to eat. And some of those scenes are really quite grim for somebody who's used to a sandwich from Tesco's or whatever. <laughs> but, um, there's a mental aspect as well, and some of those demons that you've mentioned, him sort of trying to escape, he's, he's left to kind of fester with. And the quiet and subtle ways in which Marilyn is this incredible 
person trying to keep their spirits up mm. is one of the absolute joys of this book. Tell me a little bit about her and the cl very clever ways in which she just tries to keep him alive, really. Yeah, I mean, I think what she realised quickly, you know, he, he, he's sort of, he's not... Um, He's pragmatic, Morris. He can do stuff and he's, he can sort of fix things and he's very good with, you know, technical things. But, you know, my God, he can take himself down. You know, he, he very quickly was sort of succumbing to, like, despair, really, and just didn't really have any hope in, in, the, in their survival. And he writes about this, you know, very, very honestly, especially in the, the later book of letters when he's looking back and it's sort of more clear-sighted, I guess, about his limitations in that sort of setting. And she was the opposite. She just... Um, uh, and it's funny, you can you get that from his account, that he's always crediting her with being the reason he mm. survived and they survived. Um, but you also get it in her, so I, I didn't mention before that one of the key sort of sources was this the, the diary, the, the sort of day-by-day -day diary that she kept um, while on the boat, on the sort of life raft that whole year. And, um, and you get it in there as well. You get this just absolute kind of, it's very factual, it's very precise, but it's just this kind of pragmatic stoicism which means that everything is just a challenge to be overcome and mm. you just never allow doubt in. And there's these tiny moments when you feel, when she will say something like, you know, depressed or miserable, no hope, you know, cold and wet or whatever. <laughs> and you, they're so rare that you're really struck. You think, oh my God, if she's, you know, on the edge, then, you know, they, you're, you're worried. But, um, but for the most part, she is working out how to fish. She's like turning a safety pin into a fish hook. She makes a water bottle. She cuts the top of a water bottle and turns it around and like makes it into a thing, a sort of fish catcher. She works out how to carve up a turtle. She's like, it's a bit like carving a chicken, you know, we can, you know, and, and just figures out that the fat is good, and, but you can eat the eyeball, you know, get when Morris is ill, she's giving him turtle eyeballs to eat because they contain this kind of rich fluid. And she makes them play games. She insists that they kind of read the two books that they managed to salvage from the boat. They, she sort of says like, right, let's read them line by line. And Morris writes about this very funnily. He's sort of like, you know, what's the point? I don't want to read these books, like, you know, but, but she sort of is, says, no, you know, this is a, she knows that they have to keep their minds mm. alive and healthy. But I feel like the key thing, um, and it's amazing seeing the, these drawings actually in her diary where they start sketching it out, but the, the sort of key thing that she hit upon was like, they had to believe in a future. They had to mm. believe the future was real because if you stop believing the future is real, then you, that's it. You, you know, if you stop believing that survival is possible, then that's probably the most likely way that you're not going to survive. Mm. And they, she comes up with this plan that they're going to go again. You know, they're not going to go just go back to their life when they're rescued. They're going to build another boat and set sail again. And they then spend, you know, hour after hour designing their next boat and figuring out their next voyage. And this is this sort of project that becomes, and you see all the drawings of their designs in her diaries of this next boat. And then they start making, you know, she starts making lists of provisions and meals and, you know, all this sort of stuff of, of how um, of how it's going to work. And, and you can see it's become, it, it's sort of, it's partly fun, it's partly distraction, but it's absolutely this kind of like, creed of like okay this thing if we can believe enough in this future plan then mm. that will kind of carry us um carry us through and that will carry and crucially that will like give Morris something to hold on to as he's sort of sl sliding ever deeper into his kind of depression basically the need to believe that you are going to be rescued is really tested for them because it's not that they are completely isolated they see ships going yeah. past and there's this awful thing of seeing a ship and thinking will be rescued yeah. and then it disappears and then because there were quite a few ships that went past them thinking 
we're never going to be rescued by a ship because it's just never going to see us. It doesn't matter because there's such a small speck on the horizon that yeah. it's going to disappear. You know, that is quite something to describe. Um, tell me a little bit about that kind of hope, hopelessness. They must have been dealing with a lot at that point. Yeah, exactly. No, I think each time, I mean, at the beginning, you know, it goes, sort of goes on its, its own sort of arc in a way. And it was a challenge sort of trying to make that kind of interesting because it just kept happening, this sort of like <laughs> terrible cycle. But, but, but it's sort of, you know, it starts with great hope. They see a, you know, a ship going past and they have flares. They do have some flares, and they, but the flares don't work. And then they manage to sort of, you know, the next one goes past and they manage to kind of get some, they've sort of, Marilyn, I think, is sort of like, uh, you know, managed to make some kind of homemade smoke flare out of bits and bobs and and she manages to get that going but that isn't seen and then you know the, when the next ones go past that hope is sort of gone they mm. realize it's sort of um it's really hard to be seen <laughs> and um you know that i think it's after the fourth or fifth when they sort of in a way it's kind of i mean his is sort of pure despairing but hers is almost like defiance she has this sort of idea that like well if they're not going to see us then we don't care about them mm. you know fine you know we don't need you we'll just carry on regardless and it's sort of so testament it's a sort of testament to her spirit in that way of like it, instead of sort of internalizing that as defeat she she sort of it's almost galvanizing you know and and um i mean it doesn't they don't give up and she doesn't give up but it, it is i mean i you know i think i would have given up after the first one frankly i get <laughs> you know it's sort of incredible that it is seven in the end that go past yeah. um, without seeing them all stopping. Yeah. I think you do, because you do read the book and you think, you do think that, you think, what is the point at which I'd be like, okay, I just can't, I can't keep hope going anymore. And it is so important, isn't it, that there, that there are two of them. If you are there with somebody else, that does make all the difference. But there's also something about their relationship yeah. and the book is filled with these really tender moments that are observed by us, the reader. There's one where she takes a comb and she's combing his... When they're in their most sort of bedraggled state, she combs his hair and sort of strokes his cheek. And it just makes your heart just kind of absolutely <laughs> break like that. Mm. Tell me a little bit about, again, because that's, that's your writing that helps bring that sort of thing uh, alive. Why was that so important, I suppose, to, to describe their relationship? Yeah, well, I, I think that's what... I mean, going back to sort of the initial kind of encounter with the story, I think that's what just got me immediately was like oh, hang on, it's one thing sort of, you know, you know, you know we, we're so familiar in literature with these sorts of stories, right? Mm. They're kind of a classic canonical kind of story, you know, the sort of survivor story or the shipwreck story. There's, there's so many of them. And, but so often it's either an individual or it's kind of Lord, or it's Lord of the Flies or it's a group or, you yeah. know, or like reality shows you've got, you know, it's, it's, you've got, but it's sort of so rare for it to be a, a couple and, a, and that sort of, you know, any couple event, you know, will know that life is a sort of <laughs> series of tests or challenges and that it's how you navigate those. And, but this is a sort of ultimate test, I suppose, and, and you know, how you, um, how you get through something like that as a couple, who relies on who, what the sort of roles are, what, uh, I don't know, what, what it does to your relationship as well. And I was just very moved, I suppose, when I first encountered a lot of that sort of raw material of, of how they would, how they talked about each other and how they talked about each other afterwards, you know, in interviews and they were going to give each other a lot of credit. It was interesting. A lot of the sort of, um, you know, official sort of press and radio interviews they did, they would sort of, um, you know, she would often say like, I, you know, I, um, it was a sort of team, it was sort of such a team effort, you know, we couldn't have done it without each other. We bolstered each other when one was down, the other one would kind of step in and it made it feel like this sort of, you know, lovely kind of seesaw effect. And he was always much more, um, 
honest, self-effacing, but I think true that, that, you know, she kept him going. And um, I don't know, there's something in, in, in sort of incredible in that, I think. And I just wanted to try and, and sort of understand that and to sort of understand the interiority of that. You know, I feel like in a lot of nonfiction, you, 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 you tell a story from the outside and it was just very fortunate in this case that I had enough material from the inside and, you yeah. know, from, from really from them and from their sort of inner experience of, of, of this and, and of each other and not just at, at this stage in their life, but, but sort of later in life as well. And, and that just felt like such a sort of gift. I wanted to kind of do justice to that, I suppose, the sort of, yeah, the inward version of it as much as the external. Um, we were saying earlier about how the book that they wrote, 117 Days Adrift, is, is quite a dry text. And it feels like if they were writing that book today, a publisher would be instructing them to write a book that was really sort of filled with the lessons they learned from their experience. Yeah. And I wonder whether, from your experience of, of, of writing this book and really getting inside both of their heads, whether there were sort of lessons that you can take away from it, in whether that's sort of uh, in terms of relationships or marriage or even just basic <laughs> humanity, because it feels like it's filled with these sort of little gems that kind of make you think that, that is what is important when the chips are down, you know, that's, yeah. that's what really matters. Yeah, wow, that's a good question. I don't, feel, I don't think I feel any wiser <laughs> as a result. Um, no, I suppose I feel like, I don't know, it's what just is always like, um, you know, it's what, I, I don't know, I suppose motivates me to write about anything is, 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 is people and, and, you know, what, I don't know, how you kind of get through life. And, like, and I suppose, you know, for someone like Morris especially, um, he found life really hard, you know, as a young as a child, as a single man, as a uh, as an old man, and he had this sort of window of, of life with Marilyn where it was less hot, but it was still he was still Morris, and he was still grappling with things. And I suppose the thing that I took away maybe most strongly from that 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 the sort of life raft the, the chapter was like that sense of you know, everything he'd been trying to do up to that point was to escape, to get away and to get away from people and to sort of feel as free and alone as, as, as sort of possible. And yet actually the thing that was, that meant he could survive was his connection to this other person. And I suppose, you know, it, I don't want it to sound sort of trite, but it, it is that sort of sense of like, well, uh, human connection is, is probably our like greatest chance and, mm. and the greatest gift that we can have. And um, you sort of, abandon that at your peril in a way and that and I, not to give away kind of what happens or how they survive but um but it is absolutely through the you know great luck but also through um human sort of connection and presence and and fortitude and you know and of other people beyond him and Marilyn and 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 I suppose it's yeah that kind of you know, in a way, it's, it's almost, you know, I don't make a political point in the book, but it's certainly a sort of, you know, something I feel politically or societally, which is that, like, those bonds are, are very key to the sort of fabric of everything, really. There's also that thing, because when, when they get back to the UK, which is sort of after quite an extensive publicity tour on their way yeah. sort of home, yeah. but there, it, there is this sort of almost comedy about returning to a normal life after you've been through something like that, that it feels incredibly mundane and sort of trivial compared to mm. the survival they've been through and it sort of connects to their spirit of adventure and restlessness which is that for many people the sort of daily grind is mundane and trivial yeah. and they would love to yeah. to do something like build a boat and go mm. to the other side of the world 
Is that maybe another lesson that people can take, which is that if you want to do that, it's entirely possible for you to do that? Yeah, for sure. Although what I would say is that, and it's sort of something I love about them as well, is like, it's a hell of a lot of work. And it's yeah. like, and it's really grindy work, you know, yeah. like, especially sailing. I mean, again, I, I don't, I'm not an expert in boats or sailing at all. I had to sort of read a lot and ask for a lot of help on that <laughs> stuff. But, um, you know, it's a sort of amazing kind of, um, you know, paradox in a way, because they, it's all in this sort of name of freedom and, you know, like getting out there and adventure. But like what that actually means and what sailing actually involves is this like, you know, complete grasp of minutiae and specifics and control and like, mm. um, you know, like technical, you know, huge sort of technical sort of knowledge and know-how and, and sort of um, and graft, you know, just the sort of day to day kind of and night to night, you know, constant graft of being on a voyage like that. But Absolutely. I think it's sort of maybe I suppose the, the maybe if there's a sort of something lesson to be drawn from that, it's like in your own. Yeah, that those sort of um, maybe those adventures, more accessible adventures are there to be sort of taken or like explored. And you can sort of find your own way of, of finding that that freedom. But that or maybe just that impulse of sort of breaking the breaking routine, which is sort of and again, that doesn't have to be done on such a kind of extreme scale, but it, but it, that it's really important to do that to kind of. Yeah energize yourself I suppose in that way and just to finish off you mentioned that obviously you were writing this book without being able to speak to either Morris yeah. or, or Marilyn about their lives but you did get to speak to some of their friends if it had been possible to to speak to either <laughs> of them is there a question that you would really wanted to hmm. have got an answer to that's a really good question um I think if I could ask them you know that there's this moment where they have to come back they, they do another voyage and they eventually come back to England and they sort of settle back down in, in, in a sort of life that's very similar to the life they left. Um, and like there's sort of practical and financial reasons why they had to do that. You know, they, they needed to sort of get jobs and earn money and pay a big tax bill. And, you know, they've been away a long time and that they, there were sort of restrictions to their lives as there are restrictions to all their lives. But, and they kept walking and climbing and sort of, you know, getting like scratching that itch in other ways. But mm. I guess I, they sold their boat and again, it was, you know, they couldn't afford to keep it. But um, I sort of wondered why they never, why they just never went again. You know, what, what, what kept them in England? What kept them, I suppose, sort of living this sort of replica of the life that they'd chosen to leave. And, and you know, I feel like always that instinct in them was very strong um, to sort of had to adventure and, and, yeah, why they didn't kind of set off again into the world. I would love to know that. <laughs> Well, Sophie, uh, it's, it's just such a fantastic book to read about love and, and loss and adventure and all of those things. So thank, thank you, you so much for, for rediscovering the story and oh. telling it in such a brilliant way. Oh, thanks so much.